Comic book, comic book, does whatever a book does. Read by us while drinking, incoherent rambling. Look out, this is our podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome to the SJW Comic Book Club, a weekly book club style podcast where three friends get together once a week to talk about comics. This week is an X minisode, which means today it's just going to be me, Monte, talking about the X Men. And next week, I'll be back with Veronica, Melissa, and myself talking about the DC graphic novel Nubia Real One. But for this episode, I decided to jump ahead from 2004 all the way up to Messiah Complex, which is a large crossover X Men event that involves the X Men, X Factor, the new X-Men, and a new iteration of the Mutant Strike Team X-Force. Messiah Complex runs from October 2007 up to January 2008, and it creates a new status quo for the X-Men as the climax to the events beginning in House of M. Messiah Complex starts with a one-shot issue titled X-Men Messiah Complex, and then splits into the individual books of the teams involved. The issues involved in the event are Uncanny X-Men 492 through 494, X-Factor Volume 3, Issues 25 through 27, New X-Men Volume 2, Issues 44 through 46, and X-Men Volume 2, Issues 205 to 207. The creative teams were also different for each book, with Ed Brubaker writing the Uncanny X-Men issues and Billy Tan doing the art, Peter David writing the X-Factor issues with Scott Eaton doing the art, Craig Kyle and Chris Yost wrote the new X-Men issues with Humberto Ramos doing art, and Mike Carey wrote the X-Men issues with Chris Bacalo doing the art. So this story is really long, it's really complicated, there's a lot of moving parts, and it's more than I necessarily want to summarize blow by blow. So I'm going to summarize the one shot that starts it off and then just give like a really broad explanation of what happened or of what happens in the rest of the story. So in the one shot issue kicking off the event, Cerebro detects the birth of a new mutant in Cooperstown, Alaska, and the X-Men are dispatched to investigate. This is the first mutant birth since the events of House of M in 2005. Since 2005, the number of mutants has decreased drastically from millions to a couple hundred, so the birth of a new mutant child is a game-changer for the X-Men. Upon arrival, they find a burning town that has been massacred by warring factions hunting the child. The involved parties are the Marauders, a group of mutant mercenaries, and the Purifiers, a group of anti-mutant religious extremists. This sets the scene for the rest of the event, which will involve the X-Men and X-adjacent groups, the Marauders, and the Purifiers, all fighting for possession of the child. So that's basically what happens for the majority of the event. It's these three groups just fighting each other and like the various different things that happen there. There's also some other characters that get involved. So first is Cable, who's the son of Cyclops, the leader of the X-Men, and he is trying to... Uh, retrieve the baby so that he can take her into the future, raise her, and keep her safe from the purifiers, the marauders, and anyone else who would want to hurt her or use her. And then there's also Bishop. So Bishop is a character that we saw in Extreme X-Men, and he's basically like a mutant cop. He has the power to absorb energy, and he comes from a future where mutants are contained in concentration camps. And Bishop believes that the reason mutants are contained in concentration camps is because of this baby. So he 
is going to try to kill the baby, basically. But at the beginning of the story, the X-Men don't know that Cable or Bishop are involved. That comes in later as the event goes on. Um, there's also like other minor characters that are involved. There's a monster called Predator X. It's like a genetic monster that hunts down mutants. It's just kind of like a side thing that's involved. It doesn't really impact the main plot, but it does come in contact with the other groups. So I guess it's worth mentioning. There's also the Team X-Factor Investigations. So Madrox, the multiple man, who is a mutant detective who has the ability to duplicate himself, he, along with his uh, assistant slash ward slash future wife, Layla Miller, who has kind of unspecified mutant abilities, she just like knows stuff, seemingly through precognition, but then it's revealed later that there's other complicated stuff going on. But they are tasked with traveling through the different like future timelines to see what the impact of this new mutant birth is going to be, and they end up getting trapped in the future. So the story talks about them as well, but a lot like with Predator X, it's not really necessary to the story. It's just kind of like a side tangent that the story goes on from time to time. Uh, for the most part, we stay with the X-Men, the Marauders, and the Purifiers, and how they're fighting each other as well as fighting Cable and Bishop. There's not really a whole lot to like say other than the nitty-gritty of the details which this is a really good event that i think like i would definitely suggest reading it it has a really big impact on x-men continuity and also it's just pretty well well written for all of the stuff that's going on and like all of the side tangents that the story goes on they it is still very enjoyable even when you're exploring something like predator x or madrox and layla in the future that's not really necessary to the story it's still interesting and engaging uh, like i said i'm not going to summarize everything that happens in the end cable ends up getting the baby who's hope summers and takes her into the future but there's a whole lot of stuff that happens on the way there so there's a lot of big character moments and instead of summarizing the whole story i'm just going to look at each of these characters and like the big moment that they have and how it impacts them going forward, or how it's a culmination of their story up to this point. So to start with is Cable. I think in Messiah Complex, Cable is the character that is the most effective, and or is the most affected, and is probably also the one who's affected in the best way. So Cable as a character starts off um, back in the 80s as a guardian for some of the mutant students at the Xavier Mansion, and he is sort of like, I guess you could describe him as similar to Bishop. He's like a mutant time cop. He, you know, wants to keep the timeline safe, protect the timeline, and uh, fight anyone who's going to, like, mess with time or mess with the continuity or the multiverse or what have you. But eventually, Cable is no longer affiliated with these younger mutants. He just kind of goes off on his own. And for a long time, his story doesn't really have any direction. He's kind of just like wandering around doing his own thing. And it's not really clear what his motivations are. In Messiah Complex, he gets a new motivation and he gets a new purpose. And going forward, it really impacts his character in a positive way. So after Messiah Complex... Cable gets a solo series where it's basically following him going through time and parenting Hope as she grows up. It adds a new dimension to his character, not necessarily of softness. 
I wouldn't say, but just it shows that he can be more than just a soldier. And it really ends up uh, helping his character a lot. A second character that has big moments in Messiah Complex is Cyclops, who's the leader of the X-Men. And up until this point, he's been kind of the field leader of the X-Men, or he's been the leader of the X-Men when Professor Xavier isn't there or isn't available. However, in Messiah Complex, Cyclops really takes full control of the X-Men, and he effectively becomes the leader of mutant kind. So there's a conversation between Cyclops and Professor X near the beginning of the event. Shortly after they found out that there's a new mutant baby, that the city of Cooperstown has been destroyed, and that the baby is in danger. And so the X-Men need to do something to protect her. And Professor X approaches Cyclops and is kind of protesting that Cyclops isn't involving him in any of the decision-making. He's just making these decisions all on his own. And Cyclops basically goes through this laundry list of all the things that Professor X has done that were either mistakes or, you know, were he was willfully, knowingly doing the wrong thing. Um, and he basically says, you're not fit to lead, so you should step aside and let me do what you trained me to do, which is lead mutant kind and lead the X-Men. And that's exactly what he decides to do. So after Messiah Complex, the X-Men are going to go to, are going to disband temporarily, and then they sort of reassemble in San Francisco under Cyclops's leadership. That time when they're in San Francisco, and then also um, during the Utopia era, where they sort of form their own sovereign country, is one of my favorite eras in X-Men when Cyclops is leading the team, and he's not necessarily leading it as a superhero team, but rather as sort of an army slash nation, I think that it really kind of takes the themes of the X-Men, especially as a metaphor for oppressed people, and takes it to another level. The X-Men no longer have to... The, Cyclops decides basically that the X-Men are no longer going to hide, that they're no longer going to try to win the hearts and minds of, you know, they're no longer going to try to win the hearts and minds of humans. They're going to set up an area where they're safe, and they're going to militarize in order to keep themselves safe. Um, and he basically runs the X-Men as a militia rather than a school or a superhero team. You know, obviously, that's not a perfect solution. That's not something that everybody is going to be comfortable with. But I think that it adds a new level to the metaphor of the X-Men that was that was really welcome and explores the the theme of oppression in more of a modern way rather than you know the way that it had been done for like 50 years at that point as part of that cyclops also assembles the x-force team so x-force is sort of a strike team it's always been kind of the more militaristic wing of the x-men and it has existed before but cyclops kind of takes it to a new level so during this event, the team that Cyclops puts together of Wolverine, X-23, Warpath, who's a Native American mutant who has the abilities of like super senses and super strength, Wolfsbane, who's basically like a mutant werewolf, Caliban, who can sense other mutants, and Hepzibah, who is an alien who has similar powers to Warpath, like she has su superhuman senses and all of that. Cyclops puts this team together to help find the baby, but after this event is over, he decides to keep X-Force together and to use them rather than just as a tracking team to basically assassinate threats 
assassinate potential threats, not even necessarily immediate threats to the X-Men and to mutant kind. It's like I said, Cyclops is running the X-Men more as a militia or a nation rather than a school or a superhero team. It just adds a new layer to what the X-Men are all about. Another character that is really significantly impacted by this event is the character Bishop. Like I said earlier, Bishop is from a future where mutants are very heavily oppressed, and he believes that the reason that they're oppressed is because of this baby. So that causes Bishop to want to kill Hope at pretty much any cost. It's sort of a heel turn for the character. Like before this, Bishop was very principled. He was very moralistic. He was very idealistic. You know, he believed in sort of the ideals of justice and the rule of law at pretty much all costs. There were some times where he came into conflict with Cyclops and the other X-Men because he made decisions, you know, in order to comply with the law that they that put him at odds with the rest of the team. But in this event, he basically transitions from cop to like a psychotic child murderer who's like foaming at the mouth, screaming about how this baby needs to die. And that's just kind of the way that his character gets stuck for the next, like for years and years of continuity, Bishop is just kind of this mindless villain until at, when when he does appear. He doesn't really appear all that much, but when he does appear, he's this kind of mindless villain. It just doesn't feel very earned. It doesn't feel very justified. Like, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why, like, it's not logical thinking that Hope has to die. It's not necessarily a logical thing. And I can understand, like, he grew up in a future where he was severe, he was severely oppressed and, like, subject to extreme amounts of violence. But the character wasn't illogical or unreasonable before like there wasn't any hint of him behaving this way ever he was idealistic but he wasn't unreasonable um or just straight up insane so to transition all of a sudden to him being like completely unreasonable completely unwilling to compromise or even think through his actions like at one point i think not during this story but eventually he like nukes a planet or something like that he like almost destroys a planet trying to kill hope and it just doesn't make sense for his character to be that way but at the same time bishop as a cop is one of my least favorite things even though it's not necessarily earned i think it does make his character more interesting like this version of his character that will stop at nothing to kill this innocent in order to save future innocence he believes is more interesting i think than a cop basically but I don't know. That's probably just me because I don't like cops. But yeah, I I would say it's pretty controversial. Like from what I've seen online, people either, most people don't like this shift for Bishop and they feel like it sells his character short, which I do agree with. But at the same time, I feel like it is a change, which is good because the character was honestly pretty boring before this. The next set of characters that gets uh, that get pretty big moments in Messiah Complex are Rogue, Rogue and Mystique, and also Gambit, sort of. So what's going on with these characters before this event? Rogue gets infected by some kind of virus or something like that that causes her powers to go out of control. 
the thing about Rogue, if she touches anybody, she steals some of their life force. That gets amplified so that if she touches someone, she'll kill them. Like, one touch, they die. Um, she also absorbs, like, the psyche of a bunch of different people, and it drives her insane. She ends up going into a coma. Her adopted mother, Mystique, the shapeshifter, based, somehow gets possession of her body and um, is keeping her... I mean, hostage isn't necessarily the right word, but is keeping her a prisoner. I don't know if prisoner is even the right word either. She's just like keeping her. Mystique is working for the Marauders, who are the mutant terrorist group that I mentioned earlier, who originally attacked Cooperstown. The Marauders are under the employ of Mr. Sinister, who is a supervillain, or I talked about him during the last X Minisode in the Colossus Bloodline story. Mystique kills Sinister and impersonates him. So I'm I'm not really sure why. I'm not really sure why she had to impersonate him, but in order to do what she wanted to do. But Mystique's goal is to get possession of the baby and touch the baby to Rogue so that Rogue will like absorb her power. The baby would die, but Rogue would be revived. And the reason that Mystique believes that this will work is because her wife, who is a precog, told her that this is how Rogue would be saved, is by sacrificing this baby. Gambit, Rogue's ex-boyfriend, is also working for the Marauders and for Mr. Sinister. So he's just kind of floating around, doing a lot of talking. Mystique hates him. He hates Mystique. So, you know, there's fun to be had there. But in the end, Mystique touches the baby to Rogue. Rogue does wake up, but the baby doesn't die. However, Rogue is furious that Mystique would, you know, potentially sacrifice the baby's life in order to save her. And so Rogue decides she's going to kill Mystique, basically. So she touches Mystique, but then Mystique also doesn't die. Uh, however, Rogue does absorb some of Mystique's psyche. So the status quo going forward, Rogue disowns Mystique, who is her adoptive mother, basically severs all ties with her physically. However, she still has part of Mystique's psyche in her head. And all of those other psyches were purged out of her brain when she touched Hope. So Rogue had the potential to once again just be alone in her own head and only have herself, her own thoughts to think about. But because she chose to try to get revenge on Mystique by killing her for all of the things that Mystique has done that have been sneaky and underhanded and tricky and that Rogue doesn't like, now Rogue has Mystique in her head as well. So going forward, Rogue leaves Gambit and Mystique and the X-Men. She goes off on her own to deal with this new, um, you know, the gravity of what she did and basically trying to kill her adoptive mother. I believe Rogue gets her own, like, solo series coming out of this X-Men legacy. Eventually becomes a story all about Rogue and, like, her trying to cope with everything that's happened to her. Um, the last characters that I'll talk about are the new X-Men. So these are, like, a younger group of X-Men. They're students at the Xavier Institute. They're old enough to be trained in combat, but they're not quite old enough that they're being sent out on missions. However, they have all kinds of adventures. And in this story, the new X-Men... Well, let's start with before this story. So in between House of M and this story, the new X-Men have been through just a ton of shit. There have been several attacks on the mansion, most of them by the purifiers. 
that have killed a lot of the students and resulted in a lot of the students being like maimed, tortured, a lot of psychological trauma. They've really been through it over you know, the past couple years. And so the new X-Men really, really want revenge on the purifiers. And Cyclops, of course, tells them they can't go get revenge on the purifiers. They need to stay at the mansion. They decide they don't want to do that. So they go out to attack the purifiers themselves. It goes disastrously wrong. Several of them get hurt. Some of one of them, Hellion, almost dies. But the thing about it is up until this point, the new X-Men, like I said, have just been getting the short end of every single stick. And the book New X-Men just hasn't been very fun to read. Like it it's just death after death and torture torturous event after torturous event and it's just a real bummer there's not a lot of fun this event though really is when they start to kind of come into their own and they start to take control of their own lives and their own destinies and for me this is when they become more compelling characters like there's a conversation between Surge who's the leader of the new X-Men she's a mutant who has the ability to generate electricity as well as super speed she has a conversation with Professor Xavier as she's rallying the rest of her group to go out and attack the purifiers against Cyclops' orders. Xavier tries to stop them, and Surge basically kind of dresses him down in a similar way to what Cyclops did by pointing out how he had failed them, so he doesn't really have the right to stop them from going out and getting revenge on the people who attacked them because he wasn't there to protect them from those people in the first place. It's very much what you would think a teenager would say to a parent or a guardian that they're disappointed in, but it does have the extra layer of, like, these kids really have been through something traumatic. And Xavier, who did take responsibility for them, did fail to protect them. So she has a good point. Up until now, Serge has been portrayed as kind of bratty, and I think that in this scene and in this event... Surge kind of makes the transition from a brat who's just kind of aggressive and abrasive for no apparent reason to someone who has reasons for being as angry as she is. And you start to see her in future books kind of deal with that anger and trauma and try to, you know, direct it in healthy ways. Like a lot of the other characters that I've talked about so far, this is a good direction for the character. Like, I think the best thing about Messiah Complex is that it takes a lot of characters who didn't really have very clear directions, characters like Cable, Bishop, the new X-Men, and really sets them on a path. Um, Cyclops as well, like he had a role and he had, he wasn't a character that wasn't very well defined or was just kind of floating around, but it does give him like a very defined role and a very defined goal and motivation going forward. Oh, I forgot Professor X has also a huge character development in that he dies. Bishop accidentally kills him, shoots him in the face. He dies, apparently. But he's somehow saved by shenanigans, comic book shenanigans. And he's captured by a group called the Acolytes, who are a group of religious extremist mutants who, like, worship Magneto as a god. So they capture Xavier, and they want to rehabilitate him for some reason that I don't remember. but. That's a big change for him. Getting shot in the head and dying is a pretty big change. So that's what happens with the different characters in this story. Um, Like I said, this is one of my favorite X-Men events. 
and the reason for it is because it changes so much and it comes after a time when the X-Men was just really kind of a bummer to read and now it sort of it sort of breathes new life into um, the stories and the characters. That being said, there are some negative things about it. Every issue has a different creative team and they're, the styles are very different. The writing styles and especially the art just really are very, very different from issue to issue. And it makes it somewhat difficult to read. Like it's easy to follow the action of what's going on, but the tone just seems to shift so wildly because all the art styles are really different, especially the new X-Men book, which is drawn by Humberto Ramos. And I really like Humberto Ramos's work. I, you know, I think he's a great artist and I really like his style. However, for this story, the tone just really doesn't fit. And every new X-Men issue is just like, it's so jarring to shift from the issue before it to the new X-Men art style. And then afterwards to shift back into it. Sort of a similar thing happens with the the adjectiveless X-Men issues that are drawn by Chris Bacalo. It's also just a very different art style and a very different tone from what it what should I think be conveyed by the story and what the other artists are conveying. So it just ends up being really jarring. But that being said, like it's it's jarring and it's kind of annoying, but it's not enough to really take you out of the story. And that's really the only like negative thing that I have other than Bishop's shift to a villain not really being explained very well. And then the random kind of bunny trails you get with Predator X and Madrox in the future like they're things that don't really need to be there and this is already a story that's so long and so complicated and like has so many characters involved adding in new things that are only tangentially related to the actual story probably we probably could have done without them but overall it's still great yeah that's all that I have to say about it so I'm going to go ahead and move on to rating the story I've done six stories so far. Number one was New X-Men, issues 114 through 116, E is for Extinction. Number two, Astonishing X-Men, uh, issues one through six, Gifted. Number three was Uncanny X-Men, 455 through 459, World's End. Number four, X-Men, Colossus Bloodline, issues one through five. Number five, Extreme X-Men, issues one through four, Now It Begins. And number six was Uncanny X-Men 394, the issue Playing God. And on that list, I think X-Men Messiah Complex fits just under Gifted. I think this is a good number three. Like, it's not it's not as like clean as Gifted is. It's not as tight of a story, but... It definitely is a story that has a huge impact on continuity and I think is also just like really interesting and fun to read despite like some of its weaknesses. So I think it fits well on the list at number three. And yeah, that's all I have for this mini-sode. Because the story was so long, I only read one thing. And like I said, next week I'll be back with Melissa and Veronica to talk about Nubia, real one which is one of Veronica's DC graphic novels for young adults. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at SJWComicsCast, or you can email us at SJWComicsPodcast at gmail.com. I am tired of talking now, so I'm going to stop. Bye. Bye.